Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 14. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 247. Uh, while, tur- while you're turning over to 2 Samuel 14, or page 247 in our pew Bibles, let me start us off by reminding you some of the words from Nathan the prophet to David uh, from a couple weeks ago in chapter 12. David says to, or Nathan says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own home. For the last couple of weeks, we have been sitting, uh, swimming, stewing in the sewage of human sin. Watching its chaos, the cost, the consequence of it. And it's been hard. I mean, it's been hard on you guys as the listener. I get that. It's been hard on me as one of the preachers, right? And, and, and some of you, uh, you're kind of like, man, I've been wanting to invite people to church, but I'm going to kind of wait till we're done for this tough bit of 2 Samuel, right? I, I get it. Um, since the morning of, I think it was January 8th, which was the morning I started studying for 2 Samuel 11, the chapter where David just crashes into a ditch with his sin of adultery, I've just been thinking about sin and, and diving into the text and watching the, the, the relational and emotional chaos, uh, the, the devastation that it brings, right? The, the gravity of sin, uh, the consequence of sin, the devastation of sin, but at the same time also the salvation from sin that is so clearly given to us in, the, in God's gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. For like about a month now, these thoughts have not left my mind. And if I'm being honest, there have been moments um, I just wanted to talk to Tim. Like, I just need some counseling to, to work through some of what I'm experiencing here. Uh, but on the other times, my heart is full of worship and gratitude, right? I just, just I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, I guess I'm kind of been like spiritually bipolar the last month, just really high highs and really low lows because of what we've been thinking about. Um, after the men's breakfast yesterday, I was sitting down talking to one of the guys and said, you know, the other week, it was the past, this week or the week, forget, I forget, there, there was a punching bag. It wasn't being used, which is a rare thing at the gym. And I, for five minutes, man, I just got to beat the tar out of this punching bag. And it felt so good. I said, hey, we got to put one of these in our counseling center because this is a new idea of physical therapy. It's so helpful. Just because I'm just sitting there watching. And I told you guys, like, the 2 Samuel 11 was the most emotional sermon I've ever prepared for. Like I told you, I was like crying at Starbucks and all that. And, and it hasn't really um, led up, right? With a, with a brief moment that, that Tim preached chapter 12, it hasn't really led up. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? I, I guess I could, I, I, there's a part of me that wishes we would like switch and do like a series on ways to maximize your life, which is really good. We all want to hear that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, when you think about it, Learning to hate sin and run from it is probably the best way to maximize your life, right? So it is good for us to be here. Now, um, if you're new, you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, let me just kind of let you know it's too late to leave now. They shut the doors. So you're here with us, right? Um, Let let me kind of give you the structure where we've been so you get a sense of what's happening here. Um, In 2 Samuel, the 2 Samuel is really at two major sections. Yeah, the first part is a wonderful section. It's so hopeful. It's King David coming to his own, becoming the king that points forward to the future king. But then there's like a turn and the rest of the book, it just crashes in a ditch in so many ways. Well, the pivot point comes in chapter 11 and 12 where David 
just dives into sin, in a, a sin of adultery, and Nathan the prophet confronts him. Those two chapters explain to us why the rest of the book just goes sideways, chapters 13 to 11. That, that's the structure of it. The personal level of it is chapters 13 and 14, what we looked at last week and this week, explain to us why it's David's own son Absalom that leads the rebellion against him for the next four chapters, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And, and so that's how this, these, these chapters fit in the overall book of Samuel. Last week we saw the, the relational wreckage and carnage that Sim brought in the relationships like between Amnon and Tamar and then Amnon and Absalom. This week we're seeing some of, some of the same in the relationship between Absalom and David. And like last week, chapter 14 serves as a kind of cautionary warning against all of us through David's experience just of the devastation and impact of sin. That's, that's what it's getting at. That's kind of the structure of it. And unlike chapters 11 and 12, a lot of people are kind of familiar with those. They're more the, the highlight reels. Like next to 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, the next chapter people know, uh, ironically, is 2 Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba, right? But these other chapters, 13, 14, and the next we're going to look at, are not so well known. So what I want to do again is read the chapter in its entirety because there's a lot here. And it's a very interesting chapter and you're going to see as we unpack it. So let me read these to you. First, or 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner. And put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field, and there was no one there to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Then the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives... Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king, king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. 
For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide anything from me that I ask. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. Verse 20. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 25, now in all Israel, there was none, no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's roughly five pounds. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he, is, he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I might send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. As I said, lots happening in this chapter. And there is tied into chapter 13 and the chapters that came before. Here's how we're going to understand this chapter. There are four actors, if I can use that expression, four actors in our chapter in these three scenes with two problems and one lesson. So, four, three, two, one. Four actors, three scenes, two problems, one lesson. First, let's look at these actors in our scene. Or in this chapter, we have Joab, the wise woman of Tekoa, Absalom, and David. Now, as you're reading chapter 14, some people might get the impression that the main character in this chapter is Joab. After all, he is the man we see pulling the strings. His name appears more than anyone else's name in this chapter, roughly 16 times. He's clearly the moving force. He sees the problem, and he's going to act. Just look at the chapter with me. Verse 1, for example, Joab knew the king's heart toward Absalom. And then verses 2 and 3, Joab goes and finds this wise woman from Tekoa and tells her what to say and sends her to the king. 
verse 20, Joab wanted to change the course of things. He wasn't satisfied with the way things stood. In verse 23, he goes to Geshur and brings back Absalom back to Jerusalem. So it's clear, perhaps, that Joab is the character we need to be learning from. However, others will look at the chapter and say it's probably the wise woman from Tekoa. She's got to be the main character in the chapter by whom we're going to learn our lesson from. After all, she takes up the most space in the chapter. By a wide margin, nobody says as much as this woman does in chapter 14. Furthermore, do you notice she stands in the place of Nathan the prophet from two chapters earlier. She does the same thing that Nathan does. She lures the king in with this fictitious story, just like Nathan does. She draws David in, and she's able, through his own words, to convict David about the actions he needs to take. So maybe it is this wise woman that we need to learn from. That's, that's the point. That's why she's here. But there is one big difference, however, between her and Nathan the prophet in chapter 12. In chapter 12, it's God who sends Nathan the prophet and God who gives Nathan the words. In chapter 14, it's Joab who sends the woman, and it's Joab who gives her the words. So is she the main character, or is it Joab? I don't know. Some actually say, no, Absalom is our main character here in chapter 14. All the actions and intentions in this chapter revolve around him. I mean, this guy even has a, a couple of verses in the middle, verses 25 to 27, extolling his good looks and apparently his amazing head of hair right? I mean, what other passage of scripture, what other character gets that kind of description? He is the Fabio of the ancient Near East, right? <laughs> Nobody's described as the most handsomeness of them all. Actually, though, if you read your Bibles, somebody else fit that description, wasn't there? First Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, speaking of Saul the king, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Ah. Oh. Interesting that that comment would be said about Absalom and Saul. As if to say that the fate of Saul might be Absalom's fate. But there's more than just an allusion to Saul. There's also an allusion to Samson, isn't there? Not just the mention of his hair and like five pounds of it apparently every year. But the fact that you notice that he, turns, that he burns the field of a neighbor just like Samson had done. So two allusions to two leaders of Israel that really crashed and burned. Very handsome, hairy. <laughs> Girls, this is a lesson. Avoid good-looking, hairy men, probably, right? <laughs> so is that the lesson from Absalom? Probably not, probably not. But did you also notice it says more about him? It talks about his kids, particularly that Absalom names his daughter, Tamar, after his own sister. And this tells us there is an affection in this vengeful heart. And that's foreboding of some darker things to come for sure. Absalom will not let this go. He is holding on to the grievances of injustice, and it marks him. So maybe Absalom is the guy we need to be watching. On the other hand, the majority of the story is about David. And so people say, well, maybe David is the main character in chapter 14. After all, he is the cause of all this. It is his sin. It is his negligence that brings us to this point. And he is the king. But interestingly, David is the most passive character in this chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. He's the most passive character in the chapter. And his action or, or lack of action is the most significant. 
So as we're studying this chapter, as I began studying it this week in, in, in greater detail, I kind of was like, well, who is it? Is it one of these characters? Is it some? Is it none? Is it all of them? Who are we supposed to be watching to know why the author chose to put this chapter here? We get why chapter 13 was here. Why is this one here? But why he couldn't just tag this on to 13? It's unclear. But I think that's some of the point here. There's a lack of clarity. And you're going to find, as we work through this, that is the theme that runs through this entire chapter. And that is a theme that runs all over David. Just blah, lack of clarity, not sure what to do. So those are the four actors. Now let's see how this plays out in the three scenes in our text before us. Scene number one is between Joab and David in verses one through three. Now we know from the woman's words in verse 20 that Joab did these things because he wanted to change the course of things. What's he talking about? Joab knew having Absalom in exile in Geshur was an unsustainable situation. This was not a tenable situation. And honestly, as we dive into this, the grammar of the original text, the Hebrew text, especially in verses uh, chapter 13, 39, so the end of last week, to chapter 14, verse 1, there's a kind of ambiguity enough that we could interpret this whole chapter in two very different ways. So let me introduce you to the one that's common that, that probably we all have, and then the one that's not very well known but actually has a good case and makes sense of the larger context. So the common view is this. If you read it on, on clear reading, man, David is just brokenhearted over the rift between his and son, he and his son Absalom. And Joab, wanting to heal the king's heart, wants to reconcile father and son and bring the two together. Seems clear, right? But an equally valid but less known view is that David had had it with Absalom and at best he just wasn't sure what to do. Now Joab knowing the possibility of having a, a rebellious rival to the throne far away where he cannot keep his, his observing eye on is a dangerous situation. Better to have your enemies close at hand so you can watch what they're doing than far away in the land of Geshur where you have no idea what's happening. And so his intention is to bring Absalom home. Now, legitimately, right, this is why you guys should be bringing your Bibles. When the pastor says something that's not clear, you should be like, hey, what's going on with that? Okay, so let me explain this interpretation. In the original language, in the Hebrew, the word here, looking at chapter 13, verse 39, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. In the original, it's the Hebrew word kala, kala, which could mean equally that uh, this expression like being done with or at an end or as spent as in David was done with Absalom, okay? Just so, so I don't want to freak you out. Let me unpack this. Where are my bilingual people at? Raise your hand. Bilingual people, raise your hand. Nice and, okay, okay. So you bilingual people know something that the rest of us may not. And that is, languages are not one-to-one -one correspondence, right? You, you can't take the, what's the English word for this? And then I'll just find the German word equivalent here, or the Japanese word, or the Farsi word. It, language does not work that way. Language has what's called a semantic domain. Words can mean many things. And sometimes, like, they can mean completely bizarre, unrelated things, right? Now, as a native speaker, you never have to think about this. You just know how to translate and navigate. But when you're dealing with other languages, this becomes an issue. And a perfect example happened yesterday. My wife's not here, so I can share it. Um, so we were driving to Costco to do some shopping, and we were over on, on Oso over here right before the freeway, you know. And I'm sitting there at the, at the light waiting, and, and I hear my wife say, wow, I've never seen that before. So I go, what are, you, what are you looking at? So I look over, she goes, 
Polish nail salon. Do, do you think it's like a, a ministry to Polish people that they're like reaching out to that community? They're like, babe, that's like, that's Polish nail salon. <laughs> and my wife, who's usually my super smart, she's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And she goes, in my defense, they're spelled identically the same. I'm like, yes, babe, but context. If you see Polish nail salon, you should go, no, it's probably Polish nail salon. Same exact word, spelled identically the same. Two totally different interpretations, right? So we have the same kind of dynamism happening here. And so, so let me continue. Kala could easily mean like spent at his end. Because he was comforted, Nacham, Nacham is also sorrowful or sorry about Amnon. And then finally in verse 1, don't worry, I'm just putting you the information, I'll tie it together. And then finally in verse 1, the particle, Al, his heart went out, could be his heart was over. So here's how you could literally translate verse 39 into 14 verse 1. And the spirit of the king was done with Absalom because he was sorry about Amnon since he was dead. Joab knew the king's heart was over Absalom. So that's a radically different interpretation, right? Now, here, let me address this, because if you went to college, any of you guys went to college in the last 50 years, and depending upon the school, you took a literature class or philosophy class, and you had to read guys like Derrida and Michael Foucault and all this, there's this postmodern mindset that says, see, there's no truth here when you can have radically different interpretations. Everything about life is just interpretation, right? That, that's just a big postmodern push. The irony, however, and I, you know, I, I'm very familiar with Derrida and Foucault and those guys. The irony is that while they're trying to be postmodern, they're held captive by this modernity idea that every I has to be dotted, every T has to be crossed, it all has to make sense. And then they conclude it makes no sense, therefore there is no sense, there's no real meaning, we can make it up as we go along. This is what they forget, which is beautiful, especially in Hebrew literature. And we've seen this happen in our study of 2 Samuel that sometimes the literature itself is, a, is, a, is an actor in the narrative directing us. We saw that in chapter 2 when there was just like, when there was two kings and they weren't sure what was going on. There, there was this, the, uh, the German word is zeitgeist. The, the text led us to have this confusion and ambiguity and we weren't sure what was happening. That was the point, that that's what it felt like for those people. In the same way, I think the literature itself here is playing a role saying, what is it? Is Joab, um, for love of the king, doing this? Or is Joab, for love of the kingdom, to protect it, doing this? We're not sure. Just like we're not sure who are the main actors we're supposed to be watching. There's a lack of clarity. There's also a lack of clarity in this key two verses that sets the whole trajectory of the chapter. More lack of clarity. The only thing that is clear is that it's Joab doing the action, and David's not doing anything. Either to restore his son or to judge his son for his actions. David is just blah. That's scene number one. Second scene is the woman of Tekoa and David in verse 4 through 20. Let's look at that next. Notice that twice in two chapters, right? Uh, But give David a break. This is separated by almost nearly 10 years. But twice in two chapters, David gets pulled in by a heart-wrenching story. And thankfully, his moral instincts rise up and he pronounces the correct judgment, right? That's exactly what happened here. And in each case, he judges himself. We saw what the woman did there. 
But did you notice on the front end, though, how much work this woman had to do to pull from David like a solid commitment of action? Again, more that just, this is not the David we're used to. So let me show you in the text, right? Let's walk through it. So verse 8, the king said to the woman. So she presents her case, and the king says in verse 8, Kind of like any of you ever call your politician to like redress grievances or anything like that? Okay. So if you ever, and they'll say something like this, oh yeah, I'll look into it. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that was not satisfying, right? Well, that's what David's doing here. He said to the woman, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. Yeah, thanks for bringing it to my attention. I'll, I'll look into it. Right? A, a smart citizen's going to go, no, 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 you don't just dismiss me. You push the case even further. And we see her doing that in verse 9. And she says something like, it might be sounds confusing. And the woman in Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. What's going on there? Because she's presenting a case, and David, uh, in the law, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, talks about how you deal with murderers, and how you deal with manslaughter, and they're very different things. And in this case, it seems like it could be one or the other, and David's just non-committal. He doesn't want to get involved. And the lady says, look, look, if there's a misinterpretation here, and if, if there's anything that's done wrong, I hold you innocent, all the blame will come upon me. So if we handle this wrong by Torah, it's on me, not on you. And then notice what, what happens in verse 10. So David says, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, if anyone says anything to you, just bring them to me, and they'll never touch you again. Okay, that's better, but like, lady's like, ah, King David, don't you get it? This isn't really about me. I want my son protected. Will you at least commit that you call upon the avenger or the Lord to protect my son? And that's what we see happening in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. So finally she gets what she wants from David. He says, all right, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Finally, she is just yanking this guy. Come on, I need more from you, David. I need, I need you to be decisive here. Help me out. She needs to push the king. Because he's not the king we used to know. This is a far cry from the David from our earlier study who so clearly acted and decisively. He could see things so clearly and act so decisively. Remember that, David? What do we have here? Last week in chapter 13, we saw how sin blunts our moral courage. Verse four, uh, chapter 14, how sin blunts our moral clarity. That's what sin does. It just blunts us to see things clearly the way they should be. We can't anymore. Do you think we're living in a time where there's a lot of moral clarity out there? Mm -mm. Is there a lot of moral clarity in your life? Sin can do that. Now, at least, though, what happens, let's get back to the text, the trap, so to speak, is sprung, right? Because this is what she reasons. If her son should be protected, who killed her, his own brother, why then shouldn't Absalom, who killed his brother, be at least brought back to Jerusalem? Mm, she's got him. And then verse 19, David knows who put this woman up to it. It's Joab, right? So that's scene two. Final scene, Absalom and David. So we know that David's hand is forced by Joab and has Absalom brought back to the city. But notice with me verse 24. Verse 24, what David says, And the king said, let him, speaking of Absalom, 
dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. David's still not dealing with Absalom. He's not either to judge him or forgive him. He's just not going to deal with the situation. And so verse 28 tells us, for two more years, Absalom stays in exile. But this time, not in Geshur. He's in exile in his own city of Jerusalem. And then finally, verse 32, Absalom kind of frames the issue. Look at the middle of verse 32 when he's talking to Joab. Um, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, and, and obviously, as we know, there is guilt in the guy. But he genuinely believes he's not guilty because he believes he did what his dad should have done over what happened to Tamar, his sister. So he says, look, if there's guilt in me, then let him, let him put me to death. And so Absalom's reasoning is this. If I am guilty, then it's better for me to stay in Geshur, for sure, right? But if I'm innocent, this exile from the king's presence, this situation is inexcusable. The king allowed me to come back. So which is it? Am I guilty or am I innocent? David cannot have this both ways. He needs to deal with the situation. That's true. And notice the interaction at the very end of our chapter. It doesn't really bring any satisfaction. Let's look at it. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and the king summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, here's why I say this doesn't give us any satisfaction. Depending upon your interpretation, if you take interpretation number one, that Joab wanted to bring healing to these hurting hearts and wanted father and son to reconcile, this is not the familial affection of of a father and his estranged son coming back together to be reconciled, right? It's not even the awkwardness of that situation is there, right? If you take the other interpretation... That, that Joab or uh, Absalom needs to be judged because he, of his murder and his arrival to the throne, this is also not the judicious proceedings of a guilty murderer in front of a righteous king. So what we do have when you look at this chapter is this really kind of sterile, bland, here's a subject, he bows to the king, here's the king who kisses his subject, and we just kind of ignore the situation at hand. So no matter what where you interpret what's going on in this passage, this is completely unsatisfying. It's more of the same, like, what the heck is going on here? Like, are you going to judge him? Are you going to forgive him? They just don't deal with it. Those are the four actors. Those are the three scenes. Now, what, how, what are we to make sense of this? That's, that's the turning point. And that's the two problems that are hanging over our text. The problems of a failure of justice and a failure of mercy. Unlike the story of the woman from Tekoa, Absalom did not strike down his brother Amnon kind of in the heat of an argument without the intention to kill him. No, that wasn't the case at all. Absalom, with premeditated, cold-blooded, murderous intent, struck down his brother at a party while he was drunk with wine. You remember that? There is no way to whitewash that crime. He is completely guilty as guilty can be, yet David does nothing. This whole situation points to David's failure as a king to bring justice. Again, going back to those two interpretations. If Joab's intention was to deal with a potential rival to the throne, he manipulates the situation and is able to get Absalom there to be judged, to protect the kingdom. He literally brings Absalom to David, and David failed as the king 
to execute justice. However, if you take the other interpretation, and Joab's intention was to reconcile father and son and bring healing to hurting hearts, well, David fails as a father to show mercy to his estranged son. Look at verse 24. Like, yeah, he can come here, but he is not to see my face, and he lives in his own place. So what do we have? David is the king, fails to bring justice. David, as a father, fails to show mercy. Yet, in chapter 12, David received both justice and mercy from the hand of God and yet his son Absalom receives neither. Remember when we started this study? I know it's a way back. It was back in September. But the very first chapter of 2 Samuel, we were just blown away by King David. Like, this is not a king we would expect. He was fierce in his ability to give justice and fierce in his ability to show mercy. Now we have a king who can do neither. Did you notice in each scene, all three scenes, with every interaction, David lacks any of the leadership that clothed him so beautifully in his life. There's just no leadership at all. Because the, the, the narrator's continuing this theme, sin just messes everything. Makes everything complicated, makes everything messy and, and so ambiguous, and no one seems to know what to do or how to get the ball down the field. And we see that all through this chapter. Do you guys remember? I know we didn't study it together, at least not for eight years when we went to 1 Samuel, but do you remember in your own reading the David that you met in 1 Samuel 16, even as a teenager, all to the David that we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 10. This decisive, courageous, winsome, wise David with his moral authority that gave him conviction and compassion and courage. That marked him. Everyone was blown away by it. He's a shell of a man he used to be. Friends, welcome to the world of sin. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It's a, it's a temporary insanity with eternal consequences. Sin turned this king who once pictured the, the one king to come, whose reign is ruled by or marked by justice and mercy, and now there's neither in him. And as the reader, we're supposed to see all this. The, the ambiguity, the confusion, the, the interpretation, who's doing what? That's the point. This is what sin brings. This is what sin brings. Friends, and, and you guys know this very well. And, and you know, there, there's, there's almost a, a, a political corollary for left and right, which capture some truth but are both somewhat wrong. But here, here's like what I'm thinking. Justice in the face of evil is necessary. But so is mercy. In chapter 14, we get neither. What we do have, friends is a glimpse of how terrible it would be if God left us alone to sin's consequence without, without gospel, without a righteous king. And so these two problems, the problem of failed justice, the problem of failed mercy, hang over our text. And the chapter ends with no resolution. Right? Okay, there we go. We'll see you next week for the next chapter. Well, what are we supposed to make of that? 
Here's the thing, and I know a lot of you are serious Bible students. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago. When you study a passage of Scripture, yes, you study the immediate context. you got to get that stuff done. you got to understand that. But you have to put in what we call the canonical context. How does, this, how does this section fit into the rest of the flow of the book? Because the answers can be there. And sometimes, and this is one of those great times, that you got to take not just the canonical context, but I told you there was a third layer of understanding the Old Testament. I called that the Christological context. Because sometimes, and a lot of times in the Old Testament, it just ends with, well, there it is, nothing more. But we're not Old Testament Christians, are we? We are in the New Covenant. We are in the New Covenant. What is the one lesson that we can get from first or 2 Samuel chapter 14 with all this ambiguity and confusion where no one seems to be able to make a difference or get the ball down the field? Here's the lesson. We need a Savior to deal with sin, injustice, and mercy. Now, uh, full, full disclosure, if, if you're a father like me, you, you may have been thinking about this, or just, you're just thinking through the text, you might be thinking, come on, dude, give me a break, king or not, you really expect David to execute judgment on his son, his own son? The poor guy's in a no-win situation here. If he acts like a king, he fails as a father. If he acts like a father, he fails as a king. It's a zero-sum game. Give the guy a break. But that's why, friends, we ultimately can't look at David, but we must look through David to a father that did execute judgment on his own son. But his son was innocent, and he executed judgment anyway. In verse 32, Absalom says, if I am guilty, then let him put me to death. He was guilty, but he lived. Jesus Christ was innocent. And he died. He died so that the king's justice could fall on him. And so that the father's mercy could fall on you and I. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about this very same thing. Verses 21 to 26. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I just like the way they, they made it a little bit easier to understand. Paul writes this, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. That's just an amazing verse that Paul is saying the Old Testament actually taught this, that there's going to be a way to be made right with God, not on performance and metrics and these kinds of things. And more on top of that, the Old Testament talks about this. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. How does he do this? He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins because God had presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People were made right with God when they believed that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. By the way, that also goes backwards too. God sees our sin, and the reason he doesn't hold it against us is he already judged that sin. Just as in the Old Testament, when God did not immediately smite people down for their sin, he knew what was coming. 
So you could say it this way, the people in the Old Testament looked forward on credit. We in the New Testament just look forward on debit of what God is doing, right, in Jesus Christ. God did all this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is merciful and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Friends, the point is that God is the perfect father and the perfect king. Perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Not because he had to sacrifice one for the other, but precisely because he was able to provide both in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. In both his strength and weaknesses, David continues to point us to the work of God in Christ. David showed us a growing love for God and a dependence upon God in faith makes us just like him. Fierce in justice and mercy. But David also showed us a love for sin makes us the opposite of him. Neither just or merciful. We have to choose every moment of every day And friends, the way these link together as I conclude is that in chapter 13, we saw the impact of sin in the most visible, graphic, visceral way of rape and murder and deception and manipulation. And we're like, whoa, that that is bad. But you know what we're seeing in chapter 14? We're seeing just the significant impact of sin in just the the haze and the moral, moral confusion and the lack of clarity, the lack of conviction, the lack of strength and leadership. That is so clearly all through this chapter. We have to choose the chaos or the confusion of sin and a life apart from God or the the clarity and the conviction of a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. That's what we have to choose. Not just one time, every time, every moment of every day. How will you choose? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the richness of Scripture. Father, even this chapter that there's such a, so much confusion and ambiguity and a lack of clarity, thank you that even the author writing this is using the way he writes to, 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 to evoke in us the sense of where is the hope? Where's the clarity in this world? And for them, it ends in a very bland manner, but we as New Testament Christians don't have to end there. We see perfectly that David could not, at this point of his life, blend justice and mercy. But Father, as Christians, we cannot help but see justice and mercy married beautifully together every time we look at the cross that our Lord died upon. And Father, we pray that we would continue to look to that king. Because even as great as David was, we see the chinks in his armor and where the wheels fall off. Help us, Lord, to not look at man or woman, but to look at our Lord and Savior, the perfect king and father. And we'll thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.